Well, let me encourage you to turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 10. Uh, We'll be in verses 22 to 42 today. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, please raise your hand and let us know that you'd like one and our ushers will bring you one. We'd be happy to send you home with that. We're convinced that the Word of God is life-changing. So John John 10, verses 22 to 42. Uh, Can anybody sense it's almost fall around here? (laughs) That's kind of a big deal, right? It's exciting. Some of you are groaning. I happen to love fall. I I think fall is a great season. Number one, football, right? Uh, But but also, it's almost hunting season. And so every time the fall comes around, I kind of dust off my bow. I go out and check the deer stands, look at the camera, see if there's anything moving out in the woods, and it's an exciting time. And anticipating hunting season this year reminds me of last year about the same time. We, we were trying a slightly new spot, and so we needed another hunting stand, all right? Now, I know need is a relative term, but hunters, you get me. This is serious, right? And, and so we put up a new stand, and, and though we generally had just purchased stands, kind of finding the cheapest ones we, we could buy, I, I had some scrap lumber sitting in my garage, and I thought, you know, this year, I'm going to try my hand at what most Wisconsin hunters do. They build their own stands. And I thought that'd be fun. Let's give it a go. Let's give it a whirl. And, and so with some help from my sons, we, we built a stand, all right? And, and I'll spare you all the details, but one of the last steps to building the stand was to secure it to the tree. And of course, that's an important step, you think, <laughs> right? And, and any ER doc in Wisconsin can tell you that tree stand accidents are notoriously perilous in this part of the country. Uh, folks often neglect the proper safety precautions. I knew this. And so as I took my final step, I was very careful to make sure that I secured the stand of the tree as best I knew how. And at one point, I started shifting my weight, and to my horror, the, the, the platform beneath me began to lurch forward and away from the tree. And what I thought was absolutely secure proved to be anything but. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment where you thought you were safe? You, you thought you couldn't be any more secure? But then just like that, the platform beneath you began to shift. Anybody ever had a moment like that? It's kind of scary, isn't it? (laughs) And of course, it can be a physical shift, like my predicament with the deer stand. It it can be a car accident. It can be a natural disaster. It can also be with our jobs. You know, we we think our our boss and and us are on the same page, but our conversation occurs, and just a few moments later, we're not even sure we're going to be on the same payroll. (laughs) You know, maybe it's, it's about our convictions. <laughs> Let's just say, uh, hypothetically, you're convinced the world is flat, and, and someone shows you a picture of the solar system, and it totally wrecks your worldview. Any flat earthers out? No, don't, don't answer that. Don't answer that. <laughs> maybe it's our way of life, you know. 2020 taught us that things can change in a hurry. And for that matter, maybe, maybe it's our health. One, one trip to the doctor, and our retirement plan is completely derailed. Maybe it's a relationship that starts to shift. A son or a daughter drops a bomb. A spouse reveals that they've been leading a double life. We all have those moments where we discover that what we thought was secure really wasn't. And it even happens in our relationship with God. See, for for a lot of us, it's easy to feel safe with God when everything around us is going well. We're making good decisions. We're we're good with the people around us. They're an encouragement. There's money in the bank and food on the table and, and gas in the car. It's good. But what happens when that isn't true? What happens when we experience disappointment with God, when when we experience doubt? What happens when God answers our prayers differently than what we expect. 
And for that matter, what happens when we've failed God, when we know we've crossed the line, we haven't lived up to our end of the bargain? How then do we know that our place with God is secure? On what basis then does our standing with Him exist? Well, today I'm going to present one of the most important passages in all of Scripture on what's called eternal security. And this passage is embedded in John 10. And and remember, John 10 from last week is where Jesus describes himself as the door to the sheep pen. And in fact, he describes himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. We we covered that last week. But now, in the second half of John chapter 10, as as Jesus continues to spar with the religious leaders over his identity, we're going to go deeper into the work of this good shepherd. And in that, we're going to discover just how firm the platform of Jesus Christ really is. See, under the care of the Good Shepherd, we realize we're in good hands. (laughs) We're in very good hands. And so with that, let's go to the text. John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, The setting here is another feast. We've talked quite a bit about the Feast of Booths around here. That carried us through John 7, 8, and and much of 9. This Feast of Booths was a big deal. Now we're on to a different feast. It's called the Feast of Dedication. And this is where the Jews celebrated the rededication of the temple in in B.C. 164, a few years after the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes entered the scene. See, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a Seleucid ruler under the Greek dynasty, and he went into Jerusalem, and he wanted to propagate Greek culture, and he wanted to intimidate, and he wanted to desecrate the Jews. And so he walked into the temple with his military might, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem, the altar of Yahweh. And he replaced the altar to Yahweh with an altar to a pagan god. I mean, you can imagine the uproar amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. It was an awful thing. It was a dark time for the people of Israel. Sometimes that time is referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. It was a a bad deal and a big deal to the Jewish people. And yet, there's this man named Judas Maccabeus who leads a revolt against Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He rallies the people. It's about three years between the abomination and this rallying revolution. And Judas Maccabeus leads the people against Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and they experience victory, and they drive them out of Jerusalem, and they reestablish temple worship. It was, it was an amazing thing. Hence, though, the, though this feast isn't one prescribed in the Torah, it was and it still remains very, very significant for the Jewish people. And even today, in the winter, which is the setting in which we find our scene here, in the winter, the Jews light candles on menorahs for several days in a row in order to remind them of God's protection from Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You might recognize the feast, in fact, by its other name. It's the Feast of Dedication, but it's also Hanukkah. Same thing, all right? And so the winter timing in in verse 22 makes sense. Jews celebrate Hanukkah in December. And and the winter setting also contributes to this idea that Jesus and his people are under Solomon's colonnade. This was a roofed part of the palace. Actually, that has no significant bearing on the text, except to say that they were out of the elements in the winter. And so it's during this celebration of God's deliverance through Judas Maccabeus 
understanding that Judas was a deliverer of the people of Israel, understanding that the people would have seen him as a type of the Messiah, as a foreshadowing of, of what was to come. It's in this setting that the Jews gather around Jesus and they sort of corner him in the midst of Solomon's colonnade amongst the people. And this happens, verse 24. It says, so the Jews gathered around him and they, they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? <laughs> if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They, they want to know. Uh, Judas Maccabeus was a deliverer, but he wasn't the Messiah. See, Judas Maccabeus died in battle just a few years after he delivered the people. And so they're, they're saying to Jesus, look, we'd hoped that Judas Maccabeus was the guy, but he wasn't. Are you? Don't keep us in suspense. Don't beat around the bush. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Now, were it not for Jesus' response that, that we'll unpack here in just a moment, we might consider the question honest. <laughs> we might give him a pass on, on the question. Maybe they really were wondering if Jesus was the Messiah, but notice how Jesus defies their hypocrisy. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Friends, of course Jesus is the Messiah. He's proved it over and over and over. But he knows that in this setting, if he comes right out and he says it, the people are going to associate him with the Feast of Dedication, with the deliverer, Judas Maccabeus. And if he makes an overt claim to be the Messiah, the people are going to have all the wrong assumptions. They're going to assume that Judas Maccabeus has come back, that this Messiah figure has come back, and he's going to deliver the people from the Roman oppression. He's going to raise up a revolt, a revolution, and he's going to exercise military might and everything's going to be good. And of course, that's not Jesus' agenda. We know that from our study in the Gospels. And so rather than answering their question directly, Jesus says this. He says, look, <laughs> I've been beating the same drum ever since we started talking. There has been no equivocation on my part. I've changed water into wine. I've healed the official son. I've made the lame man walk. I fed the 5,000. I've walked on water. I've healed the blind man. <laughs> and on top of that, I've taught you all along the way. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who gives water that quenches thirst. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm not hiding who I am. And so if the works that I've done in my Father's name don't convince you, he's speaking to the religious leaders here, there's nothing more for us here. <laughs> You're not going to believe me. And in fact, you'll, you'll never believe me. Why? Well, because you're not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. And church, this is significant. And I hope you'll hang with me here just a moment. This is significant because Jesus doesn't say, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. Okay? He doesn't say, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't make belief their point of entry into the sheepfold. Here's what he says. He says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You don't believe. You don't have the ability to believe because you're not in the fold. The sheep don't believe because they're not in the fold. And it reminds us, apart from the enfolding grace of God, we don't even have the capacity to believe. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We studied this back in 2020 in the summer. 
We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Verse 3 says we were by nature children of wrath. That's where we were. That's what we were born into. We were born into total depravity and into sin. But good news, Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us that by being given the gift of faith, we can be saved. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This, this faith, is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Church, what what Jesus says in John 10 is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Salvation is by what? Through, in, alone. Amen. Amen. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the order is significant. Grace first, then faith. And the bottom line here is that these Jewish leaders under under God's sovereignty are not engraced with faith. Therefore, they'll never believe. They're not of the fold. They're not in the sheep pen. Church, to trust the good shepherd, you got to be in the fold. And here's the thing. Only he can place you in the fold. Only only the good shepherd and the father can put you in the fold. We're saved by grace, not by works. Period. (laughs) Now, lest we cry out unfair, and some do, we need only look at the repetitive hard-heartedness of these religious leaders to acknowledge their willing participation in unbelief. Over and over, these people reject the message and the gift of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson says that they're not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them. It indicts them. And on the flip side, what that means for us who are sheep, for those of us who are in the fold, for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what that means for us is, church, that we have been engraced with oh so great a prize. We have been engraced with the gift of faith, with the gift of life in Christ. We've done nothing. Church, what have we done to earn our place with God? Nothing. Not even believed. Jesus has done everything. Therefore, we give glory and thanks and praise to God. Now, with these preliminaries under our belt, let's ask the question. How does the good shepherd function in this process? How does the good shepherd work on our behalf and on behalf of his father? Well, let's keep reading, okay? This is going to come clear. If it's a little bit fuzzy now, just stay with me, all right? Stay with me. Verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. (laughs) Notice the strong connection between Son and Father here. In verse 26, Jesus says that His works are done in His Father's name. He does what the Father gives Him to do. In verse 29, He says that His sheep are those that His Father has given Him. We're going to discuss verse 30 in a minute. But church, one of the features of the Good Shepherd's work in this passage is consistent with what Jesus said all the way back in John 5.36, where He said, For the works the Father has given Me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about Me that the Father has sent me. (laughs) Church, the work of the Good Shepherd represents the Father and all that He does. 
He represents the will of God. There's no mistake. And this is, in fact, what makes the Jewish leaders so angry. Jesus is claiming in no uncertain terms to be the Son of God. He's representing God's work on earth, and the Jewish leaders don't like it. Now then, notice how Jesus gets more specific as he talks about the sheep. Look at this. Verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That was a central theme of our discussion last week. I'm not going to rehash it all, but church, the good shepherd provides care for his sheep as he, as he leads his sheep, as he provides his sheep security. <laughs> Remember, and I'm the first among them, sheep are dumb, right? We need a lot of help. <laughs> sheep don't find their way to water and food and shelter without the guidance of the shepherd. That's what the good shepherd does. He guides us to the bread of life. He guides us to the water that quenches thirst. He guides us to that which we need. The shepherd cares for his sheep. But church, lest we think his care is limited to what's in front of us, limited to what we call the temporal, to what we can experience with our five senses in the here and now, listen to this. This is a great promise. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. (laughs) Friends, Jesus comes not only to provide the abundant life, we talked about that last week, John 10.10, Jesus comes to provide eternal life, life everlasting, and certainly that, that means that His sheep have an experience of eternity now when they put their faith in Him. When we trust the Lord as our personal Savior, He moves into our lives. He, he, he bestows on us His Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. We're regenerated by the Spirit, and in the now, we have an experience of God that's different from before. Remember, we were dead in our sin. When we come to Christ, we're made new, we're made alive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. There is an eternity now reality when we put our faith in Jesus. And yet, that promise is not limited to the now. It's also for the future. See, make no mistake, eternal life refers to everlasting life. And so Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, it's often emphasized that the important thing about eternal life is its quality rather than its quantity. (laughs) It's it's life of a certain kind, not, not simply life that goes on forever. And while there is truth in this, we should not overlook the point that, in fact, eternal life does not end. It's this aspect that is prominent here. Those to whom Christ gives the gift shall never perish. Praise God. And friends, for all of us who've lost a loved one, and for all of us who face that certain reality that someday we too will die, there's great hope in that, isn't there? There's great glory in that truth. That our good shepherd cares for us by by securing for us through his own life and resurrection, his own death and resurrection, an eternal glory that will never end. Praise God. But now there's another question often associated with this truth. And for those of us that are are wrestling, we're, we're thinking about this, on what basis is that eternal life made secure? How do I know? What's the foundation for that eternal life? See, what if I sin against God after becoming a sheep? Anybody in that camp? 
What if I sin after becoming a sheep? Are there any sins that disqualify me? Are there any, are, are there any steps that I can take in order to, to, to re-secure my position with God? What do I have to do to re-strap that tree stand to the tree so that I don't fall forward? And see, some of us were taught that if we commit certain sins and then we die, apart from the sacramental intervention of the church, that we're in grave danger of losing our salvation. Some of us were taught to fear that, to be petrified by that. And it does create a lot of insecurity, doesn't it? We can never know. And so we have to continually come back and make sure and make sure and make sure. And if we don't check all the boxes, we won't know with confidence that we're going to be with the Lord. And it comes down to a doctrinal issue that I want to unpack for us today that we often refer to as this. I mentioned it earlier. It's eternal security. Eternal security. And it asks this. On what basis is my relationship with God, my eternal life, made secure? Another way to think about it is, can I lose my salvation? (laughs) Can I lose it? And church, what we've read here in John 10 provides what I think is one of the most compelling arguments and maybe even the most compelling argument in all of Scripture for eternal security. And so I want you to listen to these verses again, and I want you to tell me if you think it's possible to lose your salvation once you've received it. Listen to this, verses 27 to 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. When our kids were toddlers, we'd take them for a walk. And when you take a toddler for a walk, if you can, you grab their hand, right? Because as you walk, you understand that there are going to be cracks in the pavement, there are going to be curbs, there are going to be unforeseen things. And sometimes when Christy and I were out together, it wasn't very often that we just had one kid. We started with twins. That never changed, right? <laughs> but, but when we had just one kid, we, we, might, we might have the kid in the middle and each of us held a hand. That was always delightful. Because <laughs> as you're walking along, and inevitably toddlers stumble when they walk, right? Inevitably they trip. And you know what happens? Mom and dad keep hold of their hand and we lift them up. And instead of facing severe consequence, falling to the pavement, there's laughs and there's giggles and we move on and we set them back down and their feet are made secure. (laughs) Friend, what makes us think that that if the God of the universe is the one holding our hand, What makes us think that if the God of the universe, the one who commands wind and waves, who heals the blind man, and as we'll see next week, who raises the dead to life, what makes us think that anything, including ourselves, could remove us from their firm grasp? Church, when my kids were holding my hand and they fell, guess what? They didn't get to decide when we let go. My grip was stronger than theirs every single time. Friends, what does the text say? It says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not going to happen. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. He's on the other side and guess what? No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're not letting go. Friends, Jesus is the door. He's the gate. 
He's the one in charge of who gets in and who doesn't. And when he's, he's made you one of his sheep, when he's decided to grip your hand, it's a done deal. You cannot lose your salvation, I'm convinced, once you have it. Eternal security is a real thing. Now, some of you say, yeah, but Andy, what, what about passages like what we read in our Bible reading plan a, a couple of days ago, maybe a few days ago? And, and if you're an astute reader, and many of you are, all of you are perhaps, you caught in Romans eleven twenty two what I'm about to read. Paul is speaking to the Gentiles here, and he writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. (laughs) What? (laughs) How do we reckon with that? Where does that come from? What does that mean? Doesn't that mean that it's possible for the sheep to get kicked out of the pen? I don't think so. See, I'm convinced that this passage, and there's others like it in the New Testament, I'm convinced that this passage demonstrates that those who are not walking with the Lord ought not assume the assurance of their salvation. What Paul is saying here is, look, if you're not walking with Jesus, if there's no evidence of you moving towards Christ, of you holding the hand of Christ, then maybe you should question whether or not you were ever saved in the first place. And Paul's calling is is to reckon with that reality. See, if there are no works to demonstrate one's faith, then, then people like James and John and Paul and others, they tell us, examine yourself. See if you're really in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You, you ought not be assured of your salvation. And yet, your assurance has nothing to do with your security. See, sometimes we conflate the two. We put assurance, and etern- assurance of salvation and, and eternal security together. They're not the same thing. Assurance of salvation has everything to do with what you perceive about your present state. Okay? It has everything to do with your perception of where you are with God. And friends, you can have assurance. Praise God. You can be confident in your salvation based on what God has done and is doing in your life. And as you get to know Him more, and as you enjoy the beauty of walking with Him more and more, your assurance grows, your conviction grows. I am one of His. I'm going to be with Him. I enjoy that. I rest in that. The peace that passes understanding is mine because of what Jesus has done and is doing in my life. That's assurance. And yet, Though assurance has everything to do with your perception of reality, eternal security has everything to do with God's completion of reality. I'm going to say that again. Though assurance has everything to do with your perception of reality, eternal security has everything to do with God's completion of reality. We're getting rich here, aren't we? And so if God has truly enfolded you into the sheep pen... If you're one of His, then you're secure. You are bought with a price, and that's a done deal. It's not based on your perception. It's based on His grace and His power. Friends, when Jesus secures the tree stand of the tree, guess what? It never separates. Now, I got to tell you, and I got to put it this way, the doctrine of eternal security is not a die issue. 
Okay, sometimes, sometimes we categorize theological issues around three central frameworks, three categories. Uh, die issues are those non-negotiables about which we cannot hedge. 1 Corinthians 15 says there are matters of first importance. What's of, of first importance? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. That's of first importance. Jesus died for our sin, and He rose again, and only by belief in Him can we be saved. That's of first importance. Those are central core issues. Those are issues that, that I, I'd like to think, although I've never had to, to face the choice, I'd like to think I would die for those issues, okay? That's the inner core. And that's what, if you're a Christian, you agree to. Now, there are also divide issues, all right? There are divide issues. Some of those doctrinal issues that we say, well, I'm convinced that this is what the Scripture teaches, and yet, if you go a different direction, we may not be able to fellowship in fullness together. There may be some things we can do together, not everything, uh, but we're going to divide over some of these issues. And so we're not accusing each other of being heretics or apostate. We're just saying, look, uh, you're, you're, you're not in the same camp on these issues, and we got to go another direction. And so we'll say on the street, we'll greet each other, we'll call each other brother and sister, but we may not share all of the commonalities that sometimes Christians do. So there's die and there's debate, or there's divide. And then the, the third tier is what are called debate issues, okay? And so here's the reality. Some of you may be here this morning, and you may be convinced that you can lose your salvation. <laughs> I hope I've convinced you otherwise. I think I'm right. Why do I think I'm right? Because I think that's what the text says. And yet, in charity, I, 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 I want to assent that if you think that you can lose salvation, if you think Romans eleven twenty two says something else, I'm not going to argue for it because I don't think it's right. But if you do, we can debate over that. And in fact, we can sit down for coffee and be great friends. And we can have great conversation. And, and we can challenge each other. I had some, some debate issues when I was in the Middle East with some of my team, and it was really special. There was no sense of division. There was no sense of going another direction. There was no sense that they were wrong and I was right or vice versa. It was saying, look, these are some hard things and let's press in and see what says the word. Friends, this is our guide. This is our, this is our litmus test. And we need to continually examine the word to see what it says to try to discern it. And so I'm here to tell you that under most circumstances, the issue of eternal security, at least in our context, is not a die issue, nor, it is, nor is it a divide issue. And yet, I'm compelled to share it. You say, well, why bother, Andy? I'm compelled to share the doctrine, this, this idea of eternal security, because it ties so beautifully to what Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of John. And I do think it's the main thrust of the text. See, over and over, Jesus demonstrates and claims his abilities. He says, I'm the bread of life. I have the water that quenches thirst. I am the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. And yes, there are wolves and there are thieves and there are robbers and there are hired hands that don't care. They're all around. But be encouraged. Take heart. I've got this. I'm holding the ones that are in my pen. And I'm not letting go. I've got you. And so even when these characters like Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes threaten the people of God, can you imagine being in Israel, being in Jerusalem when Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes marched into that temple and desecrated it by sacrificing a pig? The Jews didn't eat pigs. 
It was an abomination to them. They stood far away from them. But he came in and purposely set that pig on that altar and slaughtered it and burned it and and worshipped a pagan god in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the, 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 the offense that the people would have taken and the threat and the fear? If he had the power to do that, what hope was there for the people of God? Jesus says, no. I'm the good shepherd. I protect my sheep. That guy, Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes, has nothing on me. And even the overtones of the Antichrist that are present both in John's gospel, but certainly in John's revelation. Even when the Antichrist comes, he will not prevail against the kingdom of God, against the people of God, because guess what? My sheep are mine, says Jesus. You can trust me. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and my work, even my salvific work, doesn't depend on you. But it comes by my own hand, by my voice, and with the voice and hand of my Father. And so church, I know the platform around us can shift from time to time. I know temporal things are hard to trust, especially based on some of our experiences. But don't let your experience with broken things keep you from resting in God's perfect things. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're secure under the glorious and guiding hand of the Good Shepherd. (laughs) Praise God. Now, we need to move much more quickly through the rest of this text, all right? And unfortunately, some of the themes that are present here are, are covered elsewhere, and so I don't think we're missing anything. But briefly, notice verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. <laughs> just in case you religious leaders don't get it, just in case there's any ambiguity, <laughs> yeah, guilty as charged. I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God, here to save the world. And friends, isn't that what Jesus has been establishing throughout his whole ministry? What we've seen in the Gospel of John. Remember John's purpose in writing the Gospel, John 20, 31? Say it with me, would you? He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John's been demonstrating through the words, through the actions of Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's worth believing in. And the issue in play for the Jewish leaders is Jesus' claim to deity. The issue is the unity of the Godhead, distinct in personality and role, but unified in substance and mission. We could have a great time talking about Trinitarian theology for hours. We're not going to do it today. But note the Jews' response. They're not happy. Verse 31. It says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. (laughs) Does Jesus make himself God or is he God? (laughs) Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? 
If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Church, note briefly the opposition of the Jews here. Note their argument. And note how Jesus refutes that argument. In Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, where, where the psalmist actually quotes God, and he says, I said, you are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. Where's that come from? I thought there was only one God. Who's the psalmist referring to here? It's hard to say exactly, but it's likely that the little g gods uh, are, are the judges of Israel vested with God's authority, thus coming underneath the capital G God as little g gods, as God's agent, clearly underneath the authority and power of God himself. And so Jesus' argument is this. If you consider it possible for there to be little g gods, according to the psalm, and again, he's not referring to, 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 to deity forms. He's referring to people here. But if you consider it possible for there to be little g gods, according to the psalm, given that all I've shown you, what's your hang-up with me being called the Son of God? <laughs> I've shown you everything. I've demonstrated who I am. The issue isn't my blasphemy. The issue is your unbelief. And once again, Jesus demonstrates the hard-heartedness of the religious elite. They had what they needed from the law to trust in Jesus' identity. The issue isn't that they didn't have enough information. It's that they chose not to believe. They rejected Jesus. That's the issue. In church, we're going to face opposition of all kinds when we put our faith in Jesus. Our struggle is against the powers of this dark world. We know that. But as Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes to the place across the Jordan where his cousin John the Baptist had once ministered, we're reminded not only of opposition, but also of opportunity. Also of great opportunity. Look at verses 40 to 42. It says, He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Many believed and church, this is the bottom line. We need not worry whether we're chosen for the sheepfold or not. That's not ours to worry about, whether we're a part of the elect or not. We simply must believe when we're presented with the opportunity. Do you believe this morning? Here it is in front of you. Will you accept that free gift of grace made possible only through Jesus Christ? And church, we, we need not worry uh, whether our friends or our family are gifted with sheepdom under the care of the Good Shepherd. That's not ours to worry about. We're simply to share and to invite them to believe and to come under His care as well, to join us in the sheepfold. We're to go and to make disciples who make disciples. <laughs> and so the question is do you believe? Have you received the gift? And are you willing to share it? <laughs> with those whom God has called you to share. My friends, if you have, if you know that, that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have that, that growing assurance of salvation, I want to invite you to be two things here this morning as we close. First, be secure. Be secure. 
You know, one of the sobering things about traveling in the Muslim world this summer was that every time we walked into a mosque and we saw people praying in there, and, and, and every time we heard the prayers five times a day over the loudspeakers all throughout the land we were in, and people started scurrying to the mosque in order to demonstrate their faith in Allah, one of the sobering things was watching people over and over and over try to prove to God that they were worthy of heaven. And in every conversation about Jesus Christ, in every interaction, it lingered, it was there. I hope to get there someday, if, if God wills. I, I hope that I'll make it. No one can be sure. I hope that, that the good works that I've done are going to be enough. I hope that God weighs my good works enough so that when it comes time, when I die, He'll welcome me into paradise. I hope that's the case. And woven in was this sense of desperation and sometimes even cynicism. I hope, but probably not, so why even try? Friends, you can be secure in Christ. And so receive the gift of salvation. Romans 10.9 says, If anyone believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord and, and confesses with his mouth that, that he's risen from the dead, he can be saved. You can believe. You can be saved even today. The good shepherd will hold you. And if you've made that confession, he's got you. He's holding your hand and he will not let go. <laughs> and if he's on one side and the father's on the other, you can rest secure. You can be secure. They're, they're professional handholders. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about my, my kids a lot these days. And one of the other joys of having little ones. I know there's a lot of challenge. So you parents of toddlers, I get it. But one of the joys was those moments when they were laughing and giggling and running in the living room or at the swimming pool or wherever. You're not supposed to run at the swimming pool, but you know. And they would launch, right? Remember those? They'd launch. If you, if you don't have kids, you can envision it. And they'd launch at you. <laughs> and if I was in the pool, I'd catch them. If I was on the sofa, I'd catch them. And sometimes it would hurt, like their head would drive into my chest, you know? But you'd grab them, and there'd be giggles and laughter, both from the kids and from dad. <laughs> and those kids knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. They had assurance. Dad wasn't going to drop them. And they knew that based on who dad was. They knew that based on those times that dad gripped them and didn't let them fall. How much safer? Because here's the deal. Dad did drop him once in a while. Not on purpose. <laughs> How much safer are we with our heavenly father? <laughs> Be secure in him. Rest in him. That's where the peace that passes understanding comes from in Philippians 4. And then be assured, be assured. And remember, I distinguish between eternal security and the assurance of salvation. Be assured. See, assurance comes from walking with Jesus. Assurance comes from, from bearing fruit. And if you've walked away from Jesus, if there's nothing in your life that demonstrates your faith in Him, then let me tell you, let me invite you, repent of your sin and come back to your Savior. Because if you're not walking with Jesus, Scripture teaches you shouldn't have assurance of salvation. It's not that you produce fruit on your own, but you know that when you're walking with Jesus, that fruit comes. And when the fruit comes, you can say, Jesus, thank you. I know that you've moved into my life. How much fruit? What specific fruit? We're not going there. 
That's called legalism. (laughs) Not doing that. But when you walk with Jesus, when you experience him in your life, you can have assurance of salvation. And so let me invite you to be assured, walk with him, rest in him, participate in his shepherding care. Be assured of your salvation, friends. You know, back to tree stands. (laughs) When it comes to tree stands, at least putting up ones that I built my safety was dependent on me tethering correctly to the tree. And, and by the way, I've resolved that. I, I was up in that stand a day or two ago and that thing's solid as a rock, not coming down. But it's dependent on me tethering to the tree and clearly I'm fallible in that, aren't I? I'm fallible. I recognize that that tree was capable of holding my weight, but I had to be tethered properly to it and I failed. But praise God. Here's the thing with eternal security. See, my salvation doesn't depend on me tethering properly to the tree, tethering properly to God at all. In fact, it's all about Jesus tethering to me. He does the work. He and his Father secure the platform, and they don't mess up. And so are you tethered to Jesus this morning? If not, you're not secure. If you're not tethered to Jesus, you're not secure. In fact, you're on perilous ground. You could die at any time. And I don't mean to be sensationalist, but but that's the reality. We could walk out of here, be hit by a bus or whatever it may be. And actually, it does happen all the time. You could die at any time. And for you, eternal life will not be in glory. Scripture teaches that eternal life separate from God is anguish. In fact, it's hell. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so let me invite you to receive the the gift of Christ's shepherding. Trust in him as your Lord and your Savior and know that you too will be saved. (laughs) And for the rest of us, take a big breath and rest and jump into the arms of your Father and know he's got you and he ain't letting go. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I, I just... I'm I'm astounded by your word. I'm astounded by what you taught and what you demonstrated, Jesus. And I'm astounded at this amazing truth that we struggle to live in sometimes, that we are safe in your arms, that when you you grasp our hand, God, you will not let go. There's no one that can snatch us away from you. And so, Lord, thank you for the peace that that affords us. Thank you for the joy that that ascribes to our lives, God. Thank you for the confidence that we can have, the assurance that we can have based on the security that is made possible through you and you alone. Jesus, you died for our sin. You rose again. You got up out of the grave. You said, all who come to me will be be saved. All who believe in me, all who receive the gift that I offer will be my children. And so Lord, we stand here with joy and confidence knowing you have done the work. May we rest in your work. May we be secure in your promise today and always. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us in worship.